This evening's reading is taken from uh, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, We're actually starting from verse 12 and going through to verse 22. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. This is God's word. Susie, thank you. Thank you for reading. Uh, Let me add my welcome. Great to see you. Uh, My name's Matt Fuller, if we've not met. And uh, this evening we're thinking about church discipline. Brilliant. Everyone's favourite topic. Um, Yours, mine, everyone, no, no one likes talking about these things. But uh, here we are, we're working our way through Matthew's Gospel, this part of uh, chapter 18. Let's uh, pray and then have a look at it together. Our Father, as with so much of your word, uh, here we come to something which is countercultural. Uh, it is uh, alien to us to discipline people, to, to receive discipline. Sounds horrible. Who'd want such a thing? And yet you're very clear on the mouth or from the lips of the Lord Jesus that this is part of how a church loves one another. So help us understand it rightly, we pray, and respond to you rightly in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is a terrific book. If you've never read it, let me recommend it. It's on the bookstool. Um, Stop Dating the Church by Joshua Harris. It's a terrific little book, and you can probably read it in about 90 minutes, uh, which is always a boon. Um, uh, and lots of great things in this book. One of the chapters is quite interesting. It just has 10, 10 questions you're meant to ask before you join a church. You may be too late. You may not have asked any of these. Sorry about that. You should have bought this book before you moved to London. But um, uh, 10 questions you're to ask, 10 things that matter most. I won't read them all. But striking, I think, one of them is go to a church that will kick you out. Make sure you join a church that is willing to kick you out. That's odd, isn't it? 
but uh, amidst all the others, and the others may be more obvious, a church where people love one another, where they believe the gospel, where the word of God is central, join a church that is willing to kick you out. How strange. Odd thing to say. And yet that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 18. How should a church respond to unrepentant sin? A crime, an offence has been committed against an individual in the church. How should the church collectively treat the offender if they refuse to apologise, make recompense at all? That's the situation or the scenario. It's a response to unrepentant sin. Now, of course, broadly, you could make two errors in this. A church as a culture could have could drift off in two different ways. You could be overly harsh or you could be overly indulgent and both had their problems, of course. Uh, I was a school teacher for a number of years uh, before uh, going and doing this work, and uh, it's quite a good preparation for being a parent, actually, a school teacher. Uh, let me recommend it to you. Um, but uh, because you can quite easily see the impact upon children of their parents. And so lots of staff used to moan parents' evenings tonight, oh, parents' evening, a late night. I used to love parents' evening. Intrinsically, it's because I'm nosy. And... Um, you sort of meet the parents and you think, ah, ha, ha, ha. Uh, it all makes sense. Now, some parents will be overly harsh. And uh, whatever it is. Um, so, okay, you've got ten, you've got nine A stars and an A. Why'd you get an A? Why'd you get an A? And you think, oh, come on. Cut the lad some slack. You've got nine A stars and one A. Objectively, that's quite good. Uh, but some, you know, they're sort of over harsh, over harsh, over harsh. And that takes a toll upon a child. Of course it does. So it gets beaten down after a while. And then of course you have overindulgent parents. Um, you can start at a young age, perhaps a two-year-old. You don't want to go to bed? Mm. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Don't call me mummy. Call me, whatever it is, Diane. And um, let's have a negotiation. Tell me what you'd want. How do you feel about this? You don't do that with a two-year-old if you do. They'll grow up fairly obnoxious. Uh, and then it carries on as a school teacher. You know, you have these funny debates with parents at a, at a, a parents' evening. But Mark hasn't done his coursework. If he doesn't hand it in by tomorrow, he fails. He's GCSE. Fails. Zero. Zzz, nothing. I know. But what do you do, Mr. Fuller? What do you do? You sit down with him and make him do it. Well, we were going to do that this weekend, but, you know, he was out clubbing and he only got back in about 3 a.m. Right. He is 15. I know, but how do you stop him? Well, you could stop him. Physically, you could stop him, probably. But uh, how does he get the money? Where does the money come from to go to a nightclub? Well, I guess it's his pocket money. Well, you could stop that for a start. How much pocket money do you give him? Well, you know, about 40 pounds a month of them, uh, 40 pounds a week at the moment. Okay, this is about 1998 or something. That's quite a lot of money to give a 15-year-old. Maybe you could rein that back in, but no, no, just indulgent, indulgent, indulgent. And uh, the kid just failed. Failed his GCSE, dropped out of school. Now, the point is fairly obvious. To be overly harsh, that does no good to anyone. To be overly indulgent does no good either. And the same is true in a church setting. Jesus doesn't want churches to be overly harsh and, you know, a culture where, you know, have you sinned this week? Get out! Get out! Off you go! Because it's ridiculous. Um, I'm not going to say that. 
but overly indulgent. Um, you're not sleeping around, are you? Oh, well, we find that doesn't work brilliantly, but you go for it. Give it a go. Give it a go. Oh, um, um, stealing money, are you? Well, as long as the police don't catch you. That's okay. As long as you're here. No, you, obviously, that's a caricature. But to drift down that line as well is not helpful. You don't be overly harsh, you're overly indulgent. But to lovingly discipline. Parents know that. You have to lovingly discipline a child for it to grow up wisely. And within a church, it's part of loving people that at times, on occasions, you go through a process of discipline. Now, if you've been here, Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is all about relationships and relationships within the church. It's a great and honest picture. So we've seen in uh, verses 1 to 4 a call to humility. Uh, uh, we need that if we're going to uh, live rightly. Last week, chapters, uh, excuse me, verses 5 to 14, a call to care deeply for one another. To really care deeply. To chase after people who are wandering away, bring them back. Have a, a love of little ones like God in heaven has a love of little ones. But there's a shift in language that comes uh, today in verse 15. No longer talking about little ones or sheep, but brothers. It's a broad, inclusive term. Brothers and sisters, you can certainly read it that way. But having a deep concern for one another. Brothers and sisters. Verse 15, if your brother or sister sins against you. Now, it's a familiar biblical picture. The church is a family. And it's a helpful one because you don't choose your family, as is often um, said. You may dislike actively your siblings. You may have a brother or a sister that wound you up. I had a sister who was five years older than me. Um, I now get on very well, but at the time growing up, having two mums, that was one too many. And um, she used to, you know, we used to sort of wind one another up a little bit. You, but you can't leave your family. Well, you can, I guess, technically you can. But it's very hard to just leave your family. You learn to live with them. You adjust. And that's the picture here. You can't cut yourself off. We need to be reconciled. And this deep concern for one another... It's a mark of God at work. It's a mark of God at work. If we can love the tiresome members of our church, the ones who are rude to us, who ignore us, who take us for granted, who never listen to us, if we can love them, that is a mark of God being at work amongst us. And that's what we're looking at uh, here in chapter 18. Sometimes church discipline is required. There are loads of passages in the New Testament on church discipline. It's not, this is just one amongst number. Broadly, uh, uh, the, the New Testament would encourage discipline for two reasons. Uh, moral sins and heresy. So moral sin, immoral, immoral behavior. Um, and then false teaching. Those two are the two broad areas. And here what you have in Matthew 18 is the process that you go through. If someone in the church wrongs you, Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, here's what you do. If someone here at church slanders you, dramatically fails you, borrows money, doesn't give it back, whatever it may be, someone in the church sins against you, here's the process that you go through. And uh, if we look at the sheet, we're going to look at it this way. The aim of of discipline, the process and the power behind it. Okay, those three little things. So first is this. The aim of discipline is to win back a brother or sister. That's the aim. The aim of discipline 
to win back a brother or sister. I'll read verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. That's the aim, to win your brother over. Now, actually, verses 15 to 17 are the process. We'll get to the uh, bits afterwards. But um, just important to flag this up as we begin. This passage on church discipline, you can't just rip it out of Matthew 18. Because what's been said before is very important. So we've had uh, these verses beforehand, particularly uh, 1 to 14, a deep concern for others. So we had read again 12 to 14. God is a father who doesn't let anyone wander away. He'd do anything to hold on to any member of a church. Be like that, says Jesus. And then next week we'll look at verses, um, at verse 21, following. Forgive one another. Do you know what says Jesus? Okay, sometimes you're going to have to go through this process of church discipline. It won't be very common, but sometimes you've got to do it. Most of the time, forgive one another. How often? Seven times? As many times as it takes. So it's in that context of a church which is deeply concerned and loving for one another, which is a uh, uh, default setting is to forgive one another. In that setting, sometimes you need to go through this process of church discipline. So he says, starts off verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his faults just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Note. Jesus doesn't say, when someone sins against you, rage against them. <laughs> when someone sins against you, be very irritated and think, right, that's it, I've had it with you, I am not speaking to you until you come to me. He doesn't say, go and tell all your friends, you'll never believe what um, Egbert did to me this evening, you'll just never believe, he was so rude, uh, your first thought is not to be, I'm injured. Your first thought is not to be, I demand recompense. Your first thought is to be, they're good. The whole aim of this is their well-being. Don't seek revenge, don't bear a grudge. Love them as you want to be loved. The whole motivation here is to win them back. They're behaving very badly which means they've got a problem, and you want to win them back. The whole motivation for this process of church discipline is to see your brother or sister grow, not so that you get them back, not so that they step back into line, but for their good. For their good. I was recently reading uh, some memoirs of a retired minister, and uh, he was describing how uh, uh, his deepest regret, I don't know what my deepest regret would be, he was this bloke's deepest regret, that there are times when he got really nasty letters, really abusive emails telling him how wicked he was, how pathetic he was, uh, un unfair criticism. And he said his default setting in that, uh, when he felt like that, was to ignore what he described as the unintentional dragons. It's a terrific phrase. Unintentional dragons. People don't realize they're being awful and horrible. See, my default setting was to hide from them, to withdraw from the unintentional dragons. Rather than, he said, what I should have realized was that their nasty emails, their thoughtless barbs, are so often the cry of a wounded soul. You see what he's saying? 
when people lash out at you and do say something deeply unreasonable, treat you completely unreasonably, fail you and let you down, there's probably something, they're wounded, their soul is wounded and they need help. They need you to help them be restored. They don't need you thinking, fuck, that's it, I'm done with you, I'm walking away. They need your help. Very wise advice. So church discipline, it is never retributive. It's always rehabilitative. It's never, I demand justice now, but I want that person brought back into the fold. I want to do this for them. You see, the whole aim of discipline, the motive behind it is love. The aim is to bring someone back. Now that instantly affects how you behave. Verse 15, two very important little words there. Go him. If your brother sins against you, go and show him your fault. Go. That is, do it face to face. Do it face to face. I remember in my mid-twenties, the worst letter I've ever got is a minister, uh, pastor. It was in my mid-twenties. It was absolutely awful. It's sort of 87 points of why my character was deeply flawed. It just went on and on and on. It was a, it was a real work of art. Um, and uh, with all those things, when someone goes to that length to sort of slightly assassinate your character, generally wise to put it in the bin because they've gone overboard. But anyway, I, sat, I studied this thing, thought about it, reflected it and wrote, to my mind, to my mind admittedly, uh, a very measured response. Uh, some pages of A4 in response. And I wrote this letter and I handed it to my friend and said, look, here's the scenario. Can you read through this for me and tell me if this is a good thing to do? He said, no not a good thing to do. Throw it in the way, throw it in the bin. But you, took it. you can't smile in a letter. That's good advice. Jesus says, go to him. Don't fire off a text. Don't get angry in an email. You can't smile in an email. Emoticons, they are, they're just naff, aren't they? I mean, they're, let's be honest, what can you do? You know, oh, you really annoyed me. It, 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 it just doesn't just doesn't work. You just can't do that sort of thing. Go. Go to them. And you go to him, that is the person involved, him or her. Verse 15, second very important little word. Go to them. So scenario. Someone at church, whoever it is, Egbert. I just, there's no one here called Egbert, it's safe. So Egbert, and he's, one night... Bible study is deeply rude. I mean, he genuinely is rude to you. I mean, he humiliates you. It's whatever it is, something about your background or parents or your culture, whatever it is, he's just deeply offensive. Now, a, quite a common sort of setting is to tell those you know best, you will never believe what Egbert has done. You will not believe what Egbert has done. Now, that is gossip. Jesus doesn't say, if someone sins against you, vent your spleen to your friends before you do anything else. Go to them. Go to them. Because actually, when you someone annoys you and you vent your spleen, you tell your friends, this happened, what are you doing? Actually, you're just you're wanting retribution. You're wanting to sully their reputation. You're trying to demand justice or retribution yourself right there and then. Don't do that. Go to him. Go to them and say, look, we've got a problem. How you spoke to me this evening, I am 
completely upset. That's what you do, first of all. Okay. The aim of discipline is to win back a brother. That's the motive behind it all. It's a love thing. You want to love people, bring them back. Go to them. Speak to them. Okay, let's look at the process in more detail. The process of discipline, it is slow and careful. So that's stage one. I think there are four stages described here. Stage one, go and speak to the person yourself. Secondly, verse 16, stage two. But if he will not listen, take along one or two others, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. There's a legal background to this. Uh, uh, Deuteronomy 19 in the Old Testament law. One witness is never enough to convict someone of crime. You always need at least two, uh, one or two others on top. The point is obvious. The accuser, the confronter, just could be wrong. They could have got their facts wrong. Could have misunderstood. They could be wildly exaggerating something that's taken place. So don't... I mean, the fool just takes one side of an argument without listening to the other side. It's just a silly thing to do. Don't listen to someone complaining against a brother or a sister. Needs two or three others to go along and investigate. Sorry, one or two others. Now, Paul is very strong about this, in particular in regard to elders. So 1 Timothy 5, he says, Do not entertain an accusation brought against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Very strongly. Don't entertain it. So someone comes to you this evening and says, Do you know what? That elder, he was so rude to me. This or That elder... I hear that at work he's doing this in his business practices. You need to say, according to Jesus, I do not entertain your accusation. I refuse to listen to your accusation. Now, I will go with you and one other, and we can go and talk to the man himself, but I'm just not going to listen to it. I refuse to listen to it, because you're gossiping. Let's not do that. Take two or three others. Check the facts carefully. Make sure it's established by testimony. So stage one, you speak to individually. Stage two, you go along with one or two others. There's a gang to establish the facts. Stage three, verse 17. If the, the sinner, the, the offender, refuses to listen, still tell it to the church. Go public. Now, I take it in a small church of 20. That probably means that. Tell the whole church. In our setting, that's probably not the most sensible way of doing it. If if two people in the morning congregation had a complete falling out, some financial thing, they fell out, accusations of uh, whatever it is, there's limited use in someone like me standing up and telling everyone in the evening if you don't know them, they've never heard of them. That doesn't make sense. So in that setting, it's probably best to tell a small group, their friends, and say, look, can you go and speak to the person and tell them what they're doing is wrong? That's stage three. Then finally you get to stage four. Still in verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That is, tell them they're no longer considered part of the church. Welcome to come on a Sunday and uh, hear the gospel, anyone is welcome to do that. Of course, lots of people who come on a Sunday who aren't, wouldn't call themselves Christians, of course, welcome to come on a Sunday, but not welcome to share the Lord's Supper. That would be inappropriate because 
they're unrepentant over sin and shouldn't call themselves a Christian. Probably not welcome at midweek Bible studies. We'll get to detail in a moment. I guess technically the old-fashioned word, someone is excommunicated. Look, we'll get to sort of practicalities in a moment, but just observe that the main thing here, I think, is this process is slow and careful. Four stages. You give someone time to reflect. You don't do it all in an evening. Done uh, and out. You know, you give people time. You go away and think about that. Let's talk about it next week. Come back next week and see what your decision is. So they have a chance to reflect on what they're doing. But this is a slow and careful process. This is a serious one. You don't want to get it wrong. Again, you don't com- you don't pursue this process for every little sin. I say next time, verse twenty one onwards, forgive. Get on with it. Get involved in it. This is not something you do quickly, flippantly, lightly. The whole church is involved. Let me give you um, some practical examples from uh, church life here. One. Uh, so a few years ago, uh, a woman, married woman, has an extramarital affair. Clearly, she is sinning against her husband. Husband says discovers, stop it. Are you going to stop this? No. Husband says to uh, wife's friends, could you speak to her and tell her, you know, let's go and what's going on? Yeah, 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 I'm I'm having an affair, but I'm not interested in stopping it. I'm having too much fun. Two or three have gone. Okay. We'll tell it to the children. At that point, the elders got involved and it was shared more widely with the sort of friendship circle of the couple. And those who knew them best, their small group. No, still, no, I'm having too much fun. And so at that point at the church prayer meeting, someone had to stand up and say, look, Mrs. X is unrepentantly pursuing an extramarital affair. And while she's doing that, well, we can't consider her a Christian, according to the Bible. So again, she's welcome here on a Sunday. Not to share the Lord's Supper, because that's something that Christians do. It's the Christian family meal. Seems a bit odd just to join in a normal Bible study group and pretend nothing's going on, so not welcome there. Although, one one member of the staff is very happy to read one-to-one with her. And her friends, you, her friends, uh, who know her best, you can see her, of course, but you, you can't meet up and pretend all is well. When you meet up, whatever you get up to, you go for a cup of tea or whatever it is, at some point in that conversation you do need to say, listen Mrs. X, when are you going to repent and go back to your husband? Wonderfully she did. She did. Uh, to another little scenario, let's make them murkier. Not murkier, messier. Messier is the word. A little more complicated as they go on. So second scenario. Uh, someone in church makes an accusation against an elder. Now they do it to, uh, to their, their peer group friendship group and um, you know that is something to be taken seriously so after a while this sort of gets known that uh, individual X is making an accusation that the, the elders treated them very badly indeed elder says are we alright is, you know, is there a problem between you yeah yeah we're fine but individual uh, woman in this case the woman again continues to badmouth the elder at that point two or three come in because it was an issue of elders and Paul says 1 Timothy 5 you've got to take that very seriously A couple of the elders came in with one of the senior women in church. Listen, do you realize what you're doing? Do you realize what you're doing? Gosh. Now that is quite serious, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You need to repent of that. Okay. 
Yeah, we had had that conversation actually on more than one occasion. But actually, just stop there. No, I, I see that now. I see that's wrong. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I confess that and repent of that. That's obvious. The wrongdoing is a bit less certain. Third scenario, or third set of scenarios. And this is what I think the most common set. Again, man has an extramarital affair and just walks out the door and never comes back to church. Quite hard to go through this process if someone does that. You try. You try to go through that process. But obviously it's a bit more harder to do such a thing. Or, also very common, uh, there's a, a persistent troublemaker at church. He's constantly, uh, he is constantly stirring up dissent and uh, annoys everyone, and winds everyone up. He's rude, obnoxious. And so you, you know, someone finally says, look, I've had a bust up with him and I think this is quite common. Okay, let's have a think. What do we do? Matthew 18, let's two or three meet with us, meet with the bloke. And so two or three meet with the bloke. And at that point he says, ah, stuff you, and walks out the door. He doesn't just walk away from Christianity, though. just goes to the next church down the road and says, I've left Christchurch Mayfair because they're really judgmental. There's no grace in that church. And what do you do at that point? Well, normally I'll ring up the minister and say, listen, here's the scenario. And sometimes they say, okay, well, we get that. We'll encourage them to go back to you. Other times they say, yeah, whatever. Who are you? Who's the person who's left your church? Join our church, have they? Brilliant. Couldn't care less. And that's the point. They don't care. Because if someone loves you enough to go through this prolonged, protracted process, let's have this conversation, let's draw back for a week, you go in, think about it, let's have another conversation, okay? Let's get the elders involved, let's announce it to the church, it's very painful, it's ugly, people get upset. If someone loves you enough to go through that process, they love you. And if you tell another church that this has gone on and they say, yeah, whatever, we don't care, we don't really go for that thing here. No, you don't really love the individuals in your church. They can drift in and drift out and you never know. There's no love there, really. It's just superficial. So it is an act of love to do that. Uh, sometimes you have uh, some folk arrive here, and again, you hear, oh, you've left a church. Again, someone on the staff would always try and ring up the church they've come from and say, do you know they've left? You know, how does that work? Um, is there an issue do we need to know about? Uh, sometimes there's an issue with the minister, and you try and seek reconciliation. I tell you what, these things are horrible. They're a nuisance, they're time-consuming, they're normal. Because we're sinners. And we get wound up and we make bad decisions and we dig in our heels and we get entrenched. And Jesus says, people are like that. Your brothers and your sisters will be stubborn and do daft things. Love them. Jesus, this is quite a long, complicated process we have to go through. Yeah, love them. Try and win them back. Verse 14, I am the sort of God that is not willing to give up on any who are lost. And I'm telling you to be the same. Love them. The process of discipline needs to look slow and careful. I hope you see that the aim of all this, the motive behind it, is a loving one. Because I think, I th I'm trying to think this through, it would be a complete hypocrisy, really, to stand up at the front and say, love one another. Jesus says, love one another. 
but then not to care at all if it actually takes place. So there's an easy scenario in one sense. There's an extramarital affair. Love one another. My husband's run off with another woman, has he? Well, where's the love? That's not practicing, is it? It's just utterly superficial. You want to be part of a church that loves the offender so much that they'll seek to discipline them if they don't repent. You want to be part of a church that loves the offended party so much that they take their pain and their hurt seriously. Someone is obnoxious to you. Someone steals a significant sum of money from you in the church. And you tell, you say, nothing happens. Well, what's that? It's nonsense. You, a church that cares about discipline is a church that loves, says Jesus. It's, that's the process. Third and lastly, the power. Briefly then, the power of the discipline, it's from the Father who loves. The power of discipline is from the Father who loves. Verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Careful. That is not infallibly true. Jesus is saying, if this process is rightly, biblically followed, this will be true that the verdict of a church upon an individual is echoing the verdict of God in heaven. So people get it wrong in the Bible. So for example, John chapter 9, uh, Jesus heals a blind man. The blind man goes, Jesus, he's amazing. And uh, the synagogue rulers say, right, you can get out. Um, and they kick him out. Well, that's completely unreasonable and unjust. And that sort of thing, of course, happens from time to time. This process rightly followed is an echo of what goes on in heaven. Now here's an encouragement it's an encouragement to a church to do this sort of process, that it really matters. And here is a warning. It's a warning to an individual. If you are the subject of church discipline, rightly handled, God is shutting you out of heaven. If a church that has rightly gone through this process says you are not a member here, you're not welcome to take the Lord's Supper here. God is then saying to you, you're not a Christian. It's a big deal. See, why well, you want to get this process right, why it's slow. Then careful. Rightly exercised church discipline reveals the judgment of God. This language of uh, binding and loosing, if you are here, we've had it before. In uh, chapter 16, you may want to just flick back, chapter 16, verse 19, flick back a page. Uh, Jesus there says to uh, Peter, when you're preaching the gospel, when you're proclaiming the message of Christ, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of God, chapter 16, verse 19. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let me get this right carefully. In chapter 16, the keys of the kingdom are evangelistic and open or close the kingdom to the world outside the church. In chapter 18, the keys of the kingdom are disciplinary and open and close the kingdom of God to people within the church. I think is the difference between the two. So here in chapter 18, Jesus is saying the the, uh, the offending party, the unrepentant brother who ignores these warnings is bound in guilt by the church's verdict. 
whereas the repentant brother who heeds the warnings is loosed by the church's pardon. Quite simply, if you are the subject of church discipline, you can have no confidence you're a Christian, he's saying. And he repeats it, just to make the point clear. Verses 19 and 20 repeat the point. Again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it'll be done for you. By my Father in heaven, where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. The two or three, that's the two or three of verse 16, who have done all the investigating, who have been involved in the process. And what are they to do? Verse 19, pray. Pray for repentance. They're to pray. This is so serious, says Jesus. If you handle it rightly, be assured that God's verdict is the verdict of the church. But pray for them. Can you see how this chapter works? The father of chapter 18, verse 14, the father who so loves every single individual in a church intimately beyond anything we could love, that father says, verse 20, I'm there in the middle of church discipline because it so matters to get this right. And it so matters. I so don't want to lose any individual that discipline sometimes will be needed because I'm a good father. I'm a good parent. I don't overindulge. This father doesn't want any to be lost. That's why he sent his son into the world to die as a substitute for you and me so that none will be lost. He never gives up on us. And that involves at times discipline. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, these are these are not issues we want to speak about. Much jollier things, much more encouraging things in one sense we could speak about as a church. And yet, and yet we we praise you that you're not a father who overindulges us so that we're spoiled. You're a father who loves us so much that you want us to be disciplined when we're wandering. You care so much that we don't drift away. You urge us as a church to rebuke, to challenge, to discipline people when needed. Father, we pray that this will not be necessary in us as a church. We'll be quick to forgive. We'll be quick to repent. But Father, where it's needed, would you give us the confidence in you that this is the right course to take because we love people and therefore love them enough to kick them out if that's what's needed. Would you give us wisdom in this, we pray in Jesus' name.